Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, Mila. Hello. Hi, Joanne. Hi. Welcome to the Empress of Biz. Uh, we have, um, this is Friday, and this is March 20th, and it is Women's History Month. And on the Empress of Biz, we have been featuring women who have made history. And one of the things that um, I discovered through or uh, the author to, contacted me is a wonderful woman who was on the front line when the passage of the 19th Amendment was uh, right online. And delighted to welcome Mila Johansson, who is the granddaughter of one of the leading suffragettes of that day. Good morning and welcome, Mila. Oh, thank you so much, Joanne, for having me here to discuss my wonderful grandmother who who actually raised me. Well, you were very fortunate because when I read all the things that you have sent to me and we have talked about Jessie Haver Butler, uh, amazing, amazing woman. Uh, So she, you spent a lot of time with her as you were growing up and uh, let's give a brief description of Jessie and her importance and what was happening. Well, she's my grandmother, Jessie Haver Butler, and she has a memoir that I put into a book called From Cowgirl to Congress, and it's coming out April 1st. And she was an amazing person who grew up on a cattle ranch in some very dire situations, a lot of tragedy in her life where her mother died when she was 10 and and finally, a teacher in high school got her into Smith College, and she went to the East Coast where she was eventually propelled right into the center of the women's movement in Washington, D.C. And um, But what was very interesting is her first job, she worked with Macmillan Publishing Company, and her second job was putting together the Pulitzer School of Journalism in 1911 with one professor, Professor Cunliffe. And after that, she got a wonderful job. She started doing social work for the rest of her life, and she got a job in Boston setting the first minimum wage for women in the U.S. from $4 a week 
to $8 a week, if you can imagine that. Oh, wow. When was that? Uh, that was 1914 when, when that was passed. I even found in my research, I'm a research hound, Joanne, and so what I did was I found in my research the actual decree, and I print it in the book that women will oh. now get $8 a week from $4 a week. Okay, and that was established. Was that first established in Massachusetts? Yes, because anything that was done in Boston, then the rest of the U.S. would soon follow. So she ended up going for the Minimum Wage Commission to work in Washington, D.C. after that, where she became the first woman lobbyist, official lobbyist, because she was hired by somebody. And she went ahead and talked to all the senators, got them all to vote, and she got the minimum wage bill passed in the entire you know, United States after that. Wow, and how old, how old was she approximately when that happened? Well, it was when right after didn't... college, probably a few years after college, So, and she went to college when she was 17, so probably she was like 22, 23 when she arrived in Washington, D.C., and she she ended up um, meeting Carrie Chapman Cat right then and Alice Paul and Alice Paul had a house right across the street from the White House and she would serve lunch every day to all the women who worked with her and Jessie joined them for lunch almost every single day and got to know all those women and they tried to get her to join them but Jessie was more of a par- parliamentarian. So she wouldn't join them. She didn't want to go through all the rugged program they had of going to jail and getting fed through their noses and picketing. And so she became the lobbyist for the movement. And she met Carrie Chapman Catt, who was the parliamentarian. And earlier, Carrie Chapman Catt had worked with Susan B. Anthony and been handed the baton from Susan B. Anthony to carry on the movement and Alice Paul was the same age as Jessie, so they were two very young women. And one thing people don't realize is that Alice Paul had her um, Ph.D. from the London School of Economics, which is really impressive. She came from a very wealthy family. They were Quakers. And when she was in London getting her Ph.D., she met Emmeline Pankhurst, who was a militant suffragette. And so she taught her all those ways. And Jessie and she were exactly the same age. And Carrie Chapman Cat and Alice Paul worked together in the beginning, but then they had a falling out because Carrie Chapman Cat didn't like the radical ways. She was the the elder, and 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 Alice Paul was the younger one doing the militant manners. And my grandmother said several times in her book that without both of them, she does not think we would have won the right to vote as soon as we did. Uh, and that was <laughs> that was only 144 years after uh, Abigail Adams wrote to her her husband. Remember the ladies. We we <laughs> we forget how long that battle was with the uh, the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls in 1848, which um, uh, was the well, it was the start of of much. Of many of the activities, even though there had been a quiet, um, gr- well, grumbling, uh, and the women got together. They were busy working with the uh, anti-slavery movement, and 
they were being they were working they were but they were being ignored at the same time so it's an amazing story of the struggle uh, and your your grandmother she her mother if i remember correctly met Susan B Anthony and got, and became very inspired and went and and she got involved in the movement in Colorado, didn't she? She did, and and I was very surprised to learn in all of, even though I was raised by Jesse, I didn't know that Colorado had um, given the women the right to vote in 1893, and Jesse's mother had taken Jesse when she was 10 to go see Susan B. Anthony speak from the back of a wagon in Pueblo, Colorado, where they lived. And her mother got in her own spring wagon and went around the whole county and and urged all the men to vote. And I I have a list in the back of the book of all the states that gave women the right to vote before 1920, which I think is about 12 or 18. I don't have it right in front of me. But that was very encouraging and, and surprising to me. I didn't know, and it was mostly the western states. The eastern states took a while to get on board with that. Uh, some of them didn't even get on board until like 1980. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And how about now? Virginia became, you know, a, another state that ratified. Finally, we still haven't done it all, and and that's so surprising to me. I I just can't imagine it at all. You know. Oh. And and there's a really uh, there's a really good story at the very at very end. Uh, Jesse tells the story so well is that at the very end, they needed one more state. They needed 38 states to ratify before they could push through the 19th Amendment. And Tennessee was the state. And so they, everybody went down there, Carrie Chapman Cat, and then all the meat packers and all the liquor guys and all the gangsters, everybody went down there. And, and the, the Tennessee was going to vote, and it was left up to one young man. He was very, very young, Harry Byrne. And he finally voted um, for suffrage, and all the men came up and thumped him on the back and said, no, you weren't going to do that. That wasn't right. And he said, no, I got a letter from my mother, and she told me to vote for Kerry and push through the 19th Amendment. So this one man made the difference, and no one could believe it, that she was even a real person, and he had really gotten the letter. So they all hired cars because they didn't have Everybody didn't have cars back then. And they went up to her little farm where she was milking the cows, and they interviewed her. And she said, well, we, we like to um, fun with Shakespeare in the winter when we're here in the months, winter months. So I made a little pun, and my son voted for women's suffrage. And that was the day we won because of one humble farm woman in the hills of Tennessee. Wow. And one young man who decided that his mother knew what she was uh, saying. That is Exactly. So the power of mothers, right? Right, right. Hey, you know, should I tell the meatpacker story? Oh, yes, please. This is a great story that happened to Jessie, and it, it could have endangered her life, but no one knew she did it. She was um, tramping around the halls of the, the Capitol building, and back then it was amazing to me. She said that anyone could go into any meeting and even get up and speak, which can you imagine if we could do that today? Wouldn't that be amazing? And so she found this meeting going on in one of the chambers, and it was the meatpackers 
coming in and trying to get their way. And she sat down and started listening, and she said to herself, well, I know that story because her father was a cattleman, and he had sent his cattle to Kansas to be processed and sold on a train. And when they got there, the cattle barons said, no, we're going to give you a cheaper price because we can't afford it now. So he lost his shirt and and couldn't send the cattle back to Colorado, obviously, because it would cost so much more money. And he he really lost out that year. And the next year, the cattle all wandered into quicksand and sunk. So he gave up cattle, um, his cattle ranch, and moved to Pueblo into the town and became a realtor. So Jessie knew the story of what they were doing to these these cattle ranchers. And so she went to um, all the papers and tried to tell them, but nobody would print the story because the, the meat packers had huge ads into all the newspapers, except for the Christian Science Monitor. And she knew a woman who worked there. And it was a very big paper back then. And so she started writing the articles, Jessie did, in her perfect Pulitzer School of Journalism uh, format that she had learned when she worked there. And she handed the articles to the woman who printed them in the Christian Science Monitor. And once they were in one paper, the other papers could take them on and tell the story. So she went in day after day, wrote article after article, and exposed the meatpackers what they were doing and it got the attention of President Wilson who passed a law stopping them cold from their activities and I think if they would have known that Jesse was doing it they might have tried to kill her wow that's one of my favorite there, stories <laughs> yeah when yes and she was quite brave in fact we have a woman here in Pennsylvania out in western Pennsylvania that was uh murdered in Armstrong County because uh, she was an activist for the union, and she is going to be part of uh, the 2021 calendar, the Women's Voices Hear Them Speak, that the Pennsylvania Women's Hall of Achievement produces. Um, it was, um, they played rough those days. They definitely did. Uh, so I have, um, I'm curious because Jesse not only was actively involved in the passage of the 19th Amendment, and you were raised with your grandma, and if you're like me, you never think of your parents or your grandma or your you know your grandparents as anything really special, but she met all kinds of fabulous people, and she lived almost a hundred years. Am I am I right? Yes, and you know, I knew her as an older woman who wore big hats and lots of jewelry and, you know, smelt a little funny because not everybody wanted to take showers when they were older because they might slip, right? And so, I and she took all her vitamins, but I loved her and I, I hung out with her all the time. We were always together. And she took me along in her later years, um, in her early 90s, for like two or three years she was speaking alongside Gloria Steinem and Marla Thomas often. They would come pick her up and she took me along a lot and uh, it was it, it was amazing. But as I'm was reading all her memoir and putting this book together for the last year and a half, um, I found I really discovered that she was a young, hip, on the front lines of everything woman. I think she was like a, the Amy Goodman of our time, of her time, and and she was always there. I mean, 
putting together the Pulitzer School of Journalism, setting the first minimum wage, and then after the the oh, and she and her um, she always said platonic. She didn't think she would marry him. Boyfriend that she married later, Hugh Butler. They put together the first co-ed housing in the U.S. and they did it in D.C. because during World War One there was no housing and everybody was feeling quite lonely living in their little silent apartments. And she started a co-housing for all the people who worked in D.C. at the Capitol. And they would go canoeing every weekend, and they had a hideaway up the Potomac River. And they were very, very active that way. And she she later on in life, um, right after the we won the vote in 1920, she married Hugh and followed him to London where he worked for the embassy. And she and he joined the Fabian Summer School and met George Bernard Shaw. And George Bernard Shaw was so impressed with Jesse that he asked her to speak about prohibition beside him several times um, in London. And that was interesting because he was a teetotaler and he was a vegetarian and he really believed and often said that alcohol was just like murder. In fact, that was the name of one of her speeches that she gave in Essex Hall. And then she was introduced to Lady Astor, who became a lifetime friend. And I didn't know this, Joanne, but but Lady Astor was a woman from Virginia. She was an American from a humble beginning, and she ended up marrying one of the fifth, five richest men in the world and became the first woman to sit in Parliament in England, and she was there for 28 years. And I have probably the largest collection of letters between from Lady Esther to Jesse, 19. I, I want to get them in a museum somewhere. <laughs> and so she, she had a great time there, and then she um, met the Queen. She and Hugh were two of the first diplomats to ever be presented to the Court of St. James. And there's quite a story on that because she she didn't have a lot of money, and she went and got her dress on a, in a consignment store for $40. Uh, equal to $40, and her dress was the only dress out of 2,000 people being presented that day that was written up in the London Times and the New York Times the next day. Oh, wow. Of it in the book. I have a picture of her with with it in the book. (laughs) So uh, let me me, uh, ask a couple questions here on when she was at the – she went and lived in – England from 1920 to roughly 1928 with her husband. Uh, and so she got to, uh, through her husband's position. Uh, what was he doing? Uh, he was he was the, um, the attache for um, a trade commissioner. He had been the trade commissioner for the whole U.S. in Boston before that. That was a, a job he had. And then he and he, and afterwards also and so he and he was commissioned to write a thousand page book on the pros and cons of coal. It would be as if we were writing the pros and cons of solar energy right now. And when they first got to London, they couldn't believe it. It was so thick with yellow fog from the coal that they couldn't even see people walking on the sidewalk in front of them, and they would bump into them. She describes it so well in her in her book, and and so it, he he had quite a pr- impressive job there. And 
they he, they were invited to be presented to the queen. The ambassadors were always invited, but not not the diplomats, not the people who worked at the embassy normally. And and when they went in 1928 to be presented, it was the last year that that sort of thing happened. And then also they would have a tea party, and anyone who had been presented that summer, that spring and summer, could attend, and that ended up being 9,000 people. So they, they went to that tea party out in the back garden of the palace, and and she has a really cute story about that where she said, Hugh, I want to go talk to her. Everybody's talking to her. And Hugh said, Jesse, don't. You're always embarrassing me. Please don't do it. She goes, you just go to the back. They won't even know you're married to me. And he has his tuxedo on, and she has her nice dress on. And she goes to the Lord Chamberlain, and she says, could I speak to the queen? And he says, oh, certainly. I'll I'll alert her, and I'll introduce you. So he introduces her, and the queen says, oh, so you're from America. And Jesse says, yes, and women in America are terribly um, interested in you. And the queen says, oh, (laughs) well, why? And Jesse says, well, they're interested in what kind of housekeeper you are. And the queen threw her head back and laughed so loud that everyone turned to look to see what she was laughing at. And later he said, what did you say to her? And she said, well, I've been reading all these articles about how she likes to um, manage how each castle is closed down before she leaves and goes to the next house because she's she's German and Germans love to be organized. And so she had really put her finger on something the Queen was interested in. So two days later, an article came out in the London Times called The Queen as a Housekeeper, all because of Jesse talking to her. <laughs> well, that's great. That sounds like... Uh... <laughs> She was um, quite a young woman. Uh, you found, you've mentioned that this book, um, this was originally, uh, you found the book. How did you find the book of, of Jessie's as far as she wrote this, right? And then you have been editing and uh, rearranging that. Well, when I when about 40 years ago, um, right after she passed, or 30 years ago, I, I can't remember when, she uh, somebody sent me all her file cabinets because they knew I was the archivist of the family. And I was busy um, raising a child, doing writing, doing all these things, and I didn't really look into them until about two years ago. And suddenly I found all these letters from Lady Astor, and I, I found her memoir, which I had read before. And I... I thought, I'll I'll start this book on her. I just got inspired to do it. And believe it or not, it was two months before I realized it was the 100th anniversary coming up. So it was very, very apropos that I was doing it, but it was kind of, I didn't realize at the moment. And so I what I've done is I've gone through it for a year and a half, and I cut it in half because it, it was kind of long. And I researched every person in it and put wonderful footnotes so people can know who that person was. And I I just kind of spiffed it up a little bit and, and, and corrected the writing and got a professional editor for it and put in all the rare pictures that I found in the file cabinets, amazing pictures. I have pictures of her with Gloria Steinem, the article of her speaking with Gloria Steinem, I have a picture of her at the Fabian Summer School. Uh, all kinds of beautiful letter, letters and pictures that have never been seen by 
by anyone before and it's been a labor of love because we were so close that this has kind of let me feel close to her again mm. what a wonderful grandmother you had and and some of the things that um when they came uh some of the people that she continued to to meet um really are like Gloria Steinman, but she became friends with Eleanor Roosevelt? Yes, and I found so many letters to her parents saying, oh, Eleanor Roosevelt invited me to speak again, and she came here and spoke with me, and, oh, she, I just found the funniest story I put in the book. I don't think I've told you about this one. But what happened is um, she, when they came back from England, they went to Boston, and Jessie began thinking that women need to learn to speak. They need to speak out. So she started some very popular speech classes. And then she uh, she took a class with a professor, and they both realized there's no speech book for women, so she wrote a book called Time to Speak Up for Women. And she ended up going all over the country with her book, speaking in front of like 200, 500, 2,000 people at a time, and it became a very popular book, and everyone would buy the book. And she she ended up in D.C. again when he got another job there. And so she asked Eleanor Roosevelt if she would come and speak and open at her speech classes, which Eleanor did for three years. And mm-hmm. then they Hugh and she bought a little tiny house up in the Shenandoah Mountains so they could get away from D.C. with their family because they had two children. They had Rosemary and Richard, and they needed to be a family. And so she ended up doing a lot of canning one summer. And this huge article, because she was very popular and well-known, came out and showed a picture of her standing next to like 200 jars of canning. And so she wrote Eleanor and said, I've been doing a lot of canning in name of the war effort because it was dur- during World War II. And Eleanor invited her to the White House to tell her all about it. And so she went to the White House and she tells the story about how she's explaining to Eleanor about how she enjoyed the canning from all, you know, as a break from all her her political work. So I thought it was a really cute story. So I put it in the book at the last minute. Oh, wow. Um, now, one thing I wanted to clarify is she worked with Carrie Cat uh, Chapman uh, during the uh, final d- days of the uh, drive for the passage of the 19th Amendment. Didn't she often speak in her place? Or well, she, what happened know? was Carrie was going to go and do a tour of the western states to um, encourage all the men to vote for the ratification. And so... Jesse went along with her as the second speaker, and it was a wonderful trip. They went to several states, like 12, 14 states, and then she became very close to Carrie. I have three letters from Carrie to to Jesse in the book, and at the very end, Carrie had to go do something else, and and Carrie writes to Jesse and says, "I'm so happy you're at the helm." you're going to take care of things while I'm gone. So she left her in charge of the entire movement while she had to go away. And Carrie was a very interesting woman. She married a man who was very open, but he said, you can do your political work six months of the year, 
but the other six months you must come home and be with me and we'll go traveling. Mm. Uh, so uh, this young woman got to take the place of Carrie Chapman Cat, and who, by the way, was also uh, the founder of the League of Women Voters. Yes, which, she started uh, that in 1920, right when we were getting the vote. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons she did that is she recognized that women needed the uh, women and men needed background more on what was happening politically wise. And the league uh, is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. And in fact, in an event um, that we will be having, we mean the Pennsylvania Women's Hall of Achievement, which I'm president of, we will be having a uh, a special recognition lunch for these for these young for this organization, which has done so much to educate people to vote and also to get them registered to vote, which, by the way, for those of you who are having states or having primaries, uh, which includes Pennsylvania on April 28th, you can get a mail-in ballot. And uh, please check... uh, uh, your various uh, voting offices get that mail-in ballot because so many people fought so hard for you to vote. And during this difficult time, um, we don't have to. We we may want to stay in, but we can vote. So that's my my pitch right there. Uh, when you as a young girl, you traveled a lot with your grandmother, and a lot of us just don't recognize how um, interesting our grandparents are or our parents. What is the thing, though, that uh, stood out from you looking back now about, as an older woman, what your grandmother was doing? Well, I think she gave us a lot of freedom, and, and she would tell me her stories over and over and over again. In fact, I don't know how I had the presence of mind to do it, but when I was 21, I think I was 21, I went over to her house and I recorded everything, all her stories, um, for two weeks, two hours a day. And I have those recordings here, which I'm very happy I did that. And she, she influenced me in so many ways that she told me I was already free from the work she did. And when she passed away, a lot of the women from now came to me and said, oh, are you going to march in her place? And I was young and flippant and naive. And I said, oh, no, no, no. She told me I'm already free from the work she did. So I'm going to go live my life. But now I have become just like Jesse. I speak out against the travesty of uh, poisonous sprays and GMO. And I, I married an organic farmer, and we grow organic citrus. And so I am adamant against the spraying of our children and ourselves and the unnecessary poisoning of America. So that I think Jessie would take that up too if she were here. So that I'm just like her now, and I didn't mean to be, but that's what happened. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we, we that's great. We have Rachel Rachel Carson here that was born in Springdale, Pennsylvania, about 15 miles from where I am at. And she was a major force in establishing the uh, Earth Day and the organic movement and wrote some marvelous, um, marvelous books. And 
unfortunately died of breast cancer uh, due to search in uh, testing waters that were filled with chemicals from uh, companies like DuPont and that, which really went out to discredit her. Uh, so Rachel Carson, uh, she is a heroine of mine, and she is um, actually we have a, a bridge named after her in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I um, I applaud the organic effort. We certainly have um, um, we certainly have a cause there. Uh, what one of the things that I, I noticed in, in talking is she your aunt was featured in a book. From uh, that was published uh, from parlor to prison. Would you talk yes. about that? Yes, yes. Jesse um, was 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 featured in the book from parlor to prison. It's about five women who were on the front lines, and Sherna Gluck is the one who was interviewing her for that. And I was there when she was interviewing her. In fact, Sherna and I went along with her when she spoke with Gloria and Marla one time. And I've been talking to Sherna, and Sherna is um, probably going to write the foreword for my book. I've just been talking to her this week and last week, and she is amazing. She's 85 now, and she's a beautiful, very educated woman who put together the book From Parlor to Prison. So you can, you can buy that book online on Amazon used for very reasonable and read all about the journey of five women in that book. And and so it, it's a great book. I've been using it for reference. And it's been used in women's studies majorly since it was first put out in probably 1972-74. It's a very, very popular book, From Parlor to Prison. And now yeah, this book... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask you. The book now. Where are you at, and how can one get in touch with you um, of, in, to buy your book, From Cowgirl to Congress? Yes, From Cowgirl to Congress is going to be on Amazon the first of April or, or the week following. So very, very soon, and I hope you'll all buy it and, and read it and enjoy it. You will get to be part of the movement by reading this book. It's an eyewitness account, fly on the wall. And Jessie is a great writer, a great descriptor. She's a great storyteller. And she, if you go onto YouTube, you could see a small digital story I made about her called From Cowgirl to Congress. You can see that now. It's five minutes long. And also, you can read a lot about Jessie on my website, which is milajohansson.com. And... I really want to inspire women that we can all be anything, anything we want, no matter where we've come from. Jessie came from terrible tragedies and dangers where she lived in Pueblo, Colorado. And she went to Smith College and then on to the front lines and had a wonderful, beautiful, energetic life. And so we can all do that. It's, it's available to anybody. Would you please spell that out, your website? Yes. M-I-L-A-J-O-H-A-N-S-E-N.com. So it's MilaJohansson.com. Okay, thank you. And, and what is the best way to get a hold of you, Mila? Uh, 
You know what? Okay, the best way to get a hold of me is my email, which is backwards. So it's johansonmila at gmail.com. johansonmila at gmail.com. I, since I'm a writer, I answer my emails right away. Mm-hmm. And you have written other things, right, and, and uh, other uh, plays, et cetera. Yes, I've written 22 plays and musicals that circle the globe, and I am writing just finished a novel called The Four Thieves and it's actually very apropos, Joanne, because it's it's about how an herbalist saves England from one of the plagues. It's a sweating sickness. And the sweating sickness is actually known now as a hunter virus. And there's these basic garden herbs that can be put into vinegar and can stop almost any sickness. And right now, what I've been doing, my husband and I and all of my friends, we put um, lavender essential oil drops on washcloths and carry them with you wherever you go and sniff them. You can almost not get sick if you're sniffing lavender. And the interesting thing about that is that that is how many, many people in England in history avoided the plague was was sniffing lavender or rosemary or many of these herbs. They're very powerful. There's what we had before we had the modern medicine. And many people still believe in them. And so the entire book, The Four Thieves, is about uh, it's actually a, a period in history, 1502, when Catherine of Aragon was married to the first son of Henry VII, and he died of the sweating sickness, um, Arthur. And he, but Catherine didn't didn't die, and the reason is she was saved by these herbs. And at that point, Henry, who became the notorious king later, he was only 10 years old. And, and, but anyway, it's, it's about Cap- how Catherine of Aragon survived the sweating sickness when her husband died. And he was only mm-hmm. 15. Her husband was only 15 and she was only 16, if you can imagine that. Wow. Wow. And uh, <laughs> yeah. had quite an adventurous life, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. And now I love doing research. I just, I just, I, oh, anyway, I can live in my research. Yeah. And one of the things that as we do wrap up and we think that, Everybody, and rightfully so, is is scared now. But when you you realize, if you are a history buff, you realize what we have survived and how um, terrible uh, plagues were, and yellow fever, and tuberculosis, and diphtheria, and, and polio. My goodness, the human race has survived, and we're now billions of people, and um, we're a lot hardier and resilient than we give ourselves credit for right now. So that's what I've been trying to stress with people, be positive, follow the guidelines, but also recognize that we've gone through this before and it's been a lot worse. And thank God for, for the technology we have. And, and even the old-fashioned methods will keep us um, uh, protected. What... Um, We've been talking, and you and I started talking, but I have this book for an hour, and I think we're going to, we've been talking for, it's telling me 40 minutes and 21 seconds <laughs> at this point. Um, what do you want people to take away from uh, reading the book, Cowgirl I, to Call? I think it's it's important to to experience it through Jesse's eyes, so that women will really realize what an honor it is to vote 
and I hope all the young people will go out and vote at this next election. And one of the best things any of us could do is go and, and drive people to the election places or, or you know, encourage everyone to vote and tell them how important it is that their vote really will count and, and to not take it, you know, lightly. And the fight for it was so, so big. I mean, these people were, were tortured and poisoned and, and ridiculed. And, and, and we have to appreciate all that they went through for us. And, and even Carrie and Jesse believed that the men needed to be liberated as well. And they, that was the difference between Alice, Paul, and Carrie, is that Carrie believed the men needed to be involved for us to win. And, and, and for women to be free is really frees the men as well. And, and, and the other thing, of course, as I keep saying, is that to inspire everyone that we can all do anything and be anything we want to be. And I always like to quote Glinda the Good Witch from Oz where she said, you've always had the power. Mm. Yes. Uh, that's one of my favorite uh, favorite movies of all time. And I, I imagine myself, you know, it's funny, when I, when I have a uh, uh, situation that uh, I'm nervous about, I just imagine myself clicking my red heels, my red shiny heels. <laughs> I love that. You know, I, I, I always tell everyone I grew up in Oz. It was my favorite books. My mom read them. My mother read me all of them. She had all the the big bound ones from London because that's where she had grown up. And and, and then uh, I read them to myself. And then I read them to my daughter. And then I wrote three of them into beautiful musicals. And I, I, I love Oz. I'm glad you yeah. do, too. Yeah, I do, too. Well, okay, let's repeat again. Uh, when your book is going to be available and what is the best way to order that and also contact you. Sure. From Cowgirl to Congress will be coming out April 1st or thereafter, maybe one week after. And we are going to have it on Amazon for now, and then it will be available in a lot of bookstores and all over so you can go on to Amazon and order from Cowgirl to Congress. And I want to encourage you to re- leave a review when you do that because the reviews really help get the book known. And I mainly want everyone to read it to be inspired. And And here we are. It comes out at the perfect time with the 100th anniversary coming up on August 18th this year. And also the big vote coming up next November. So it's it's timely... It's fly on the wall. It's inspiring. Thank you for your time. I I love this interview, uh, and I'm looking forward to us talking more. And this is Joanne Forrester, the Empress of Biz, uh, also known uh, as um, the president of the Pennsylvania Women's Hall of Achievement. And folks, you can get a hold of me. I like phone calls. Four one two. Four four zero six nine six nine is the office. That is four one two four four zero six nine six nine. And we also have a on Facebook Empress of Biz. Listen, learn, prosper. Just look up Facebook Empress of Biz. Listen, learn, prosper. And we're going to be during this um, this time of um, sheltering in place. 
Uh, we're going to be doing some more interviews to uh, to uh, get people uh, involved in uh, sharing their stories. Mila, thank you for sharing your story of your wonderful grandmother, uh, Jesse Haver Butler. And I, I hope everybody orders from cowgirl to Congress. What an amazing and inspiring story. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joanne. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.